Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we'd like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? This show is being released right around Thanksgiving, so here's wishing a happy holiday to all of our listeners and to you, Richard. And to you too, Jim. You know, this is the busiest travel time of the year in the United States, more so even than Christmas, which is the biggest event for family get-togethers in many other parts of the world. Thanksgiving also being such a wonderful time to have families together. Sometimes we get to see children, cousins, and nieces and nephews that we haven't seen in a while. We thought it would be fun to look at what kids need in our world today, and especially the power of play. We've gone back to two of our favorite episodes from a couple of years ago about improving education and the importance of play with Tamara Mose and Lucy Crehan. When parents are setting up a play date for their child, any tips, any things to make it better before the child comes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, th- this show is called How Do We Fix It, right? Right. <laughs> and exactly. so when I, when I think of how do we fix this, I think we can be open to more diversity. Let's listen to our children's desires. I think we've lost the ability to do that because we're so afraid of everything our children interacts with. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Children have a right to play, and many educators think creative play actually plays the most important role in the mental and physical health of young children, more important than anything else. But what do we mean by creative play? In the words of child education researcher Joan Alman, quote, children no longer have the freedom to explore woods and fields and find their own special places. Informal neighborhood ball games are a thing of the past as children are herded into athletic leagues at increasingly younger ages. Add to that the fact that more kids are sitting still in front of screens. They're absorbing other people's stories and imaginations, leaving less time for play when children actually make their own rules. And even education for children has become more structured with more supervision, more testing, and less time for recess and free play. But first, we're going to discuss playdates. Tamara Mose is an associate professor of urban sociology at Brooklyn College. She's the author of The Playdate. 
parents, children, and the new expectations of play. We first spoke to Tamara in 2016. You know, Richard, I don't think you or I ever even knew that Playdate was a word when we were kids. It wasn't until we had kids that people started talking about setting up special times for children to play together. And this is where we started in with Tamara. I think the play date began because we have a lot of fear for our children, especially in urban centers, not only urban centers, rural areas, as well as suburban areas. So we have this fear that has developed with the 24-7 news cycle that we now have and that we see. The media tends to give us the sense that there's violence lurking at every corner. So you always have to beware of the kidnapper or right. the person who's mean down the street. And so we feel that the the media has kind of conjured up this fear in parents. So we want our kids to play in a more protected, supervised environment. Right. Something that we can mediate as parents. What I want to know is, where did you get the idea to write this book? Well, I was actually on a play date with some families, and I recognized immediately that I was able to garner some kind of, um, let's say, career advancement Mm -hmm. through one of the parents who knew somebody that was on my committee for my dissertation at graduate school. So it was a social event for you and and a professional one as well as for your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once I started seeing there was a connection between parents who didn't know each other necessarily, it was interesting to me that, hey, this phenomenon of the play date actually does something for parents more than maybe it does even for children. Because you always think of play dates as being something you just arrange for your kids. Yeah. And it's absolutely not. It's something that parents are arranging for themselves. So you live in Brooklyn, New York, where it's a little harder to just let kids go out and run around outside and play, although they used to do that. And so you started interviewing caretakers, parents, and and looking into playdates and how they work. And you write in your book, I began to notice that playdates tended to happen with people of the same social classes, races, and ethnicities. Nannies typically had playdates with other nannies of similar ethnic or racial background. And parents had playdates with other parents who were in similar socioeconomic situations. Absolutely. So what I found is that parents tended to separate themselves, not only by race and ethnicity, and class, but also for religious reasons. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think we could add more diversity into how our children play with other children. Let's talk about the pluses of playdates as well as the potential minuses. What what are good things that you see coming out of maybe being a little bit more organized as a parent and and having a playdate for your child rather than just saying, Go out and play. Well, as a mother of a special needs child, my youngest son has Down syndrome. I think for children with special needs, it probably does help to have play dates because you can manage behavioral issues that may arise. But I do feel that free play has more advantages than this type of structured, privatized play that we're seeing now. And we've certainly talked about that a lot on the show. One of our early guests was Lenora Skenazy, who leads the Free Range Kids Movement. And she talks a lot about free play. And yet a lot of parents seem to be afraid to give their kids time to do that. They want to make sure that every minute of play is somehow leading them to Juilliard or somewhere. Right. Absolutely. Well, technology and the advancement of technology, I think, has contributed to that phenomenon as well. So this idea that everything can be structured, everything can be placed, everything has a purpose, and the purpose is really what we're getting at. This idea that if we can give our child guitar lessons, piano lessons, Kumon lessons, so they can learn math properly, Um, all these variety of lessons, that will eventually lead them to some kind of career. Because right now we're in this precarious workplace, and we don't know what jobs are available to our children once they graduate college or high school. What kind of social support system do playdates provide for, Mm -hmm. for parents? I think it 
does provide a lot of support, actually. I think especially for families that have younger children, I mean, three or under, I think it gives them the opportunity to break the mundane and monotony of the day with a child. It allows you to communicate with other adults and have that adult conversation. But it does also lend itself to business opportunities. So if people have similar interests, because as I mentioned in the book, you know, it's people like us. So it's people who tend to have careers like us in the same socioeconomic bracket. And, you know, compared to, say, a a village in Africa, American parenthood, if if you're home with your kids, is a very lonely place. You know, at the same time, we're maybe rolling our eyes slightly at some of the artificiality of the play date. You can understand why it's so necessary for for stay-at-home mothers or stay-at-home dads to get out and have a chance to talk to another adult for uh, for an hour. But I do think that with the, again, the advancement of technology, so everybody has a smartphone, everybody from all socioeconomic brackets have Mm -hmm. a smartphone. I think that allows for us to have a little bit more isolation because we feel connected somehow to people through that mechanism. That's fascinating. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know what kind of thing it is. (laughs) From my own personal perspective, I think it's a less than ideal situation because we've lost the capability to interface with one another. And spontaneously. I mean, right. you know, one thing, in some ways, your work reminded me a little bit of um, of the work of Charles Murray, who mm-hmm. looks at the isolation of different social groups right. from each other. And we see this somewhat in the current campaign where so many people from our sorts of backgrounds, we can't understand the Trump phenomenon because many of us don't know that many of those people. And I think there's a lot to be said for people being thrown together with people that aren't like them. Right. Well, because you're doing it in the privacy of your own home. So, you know, the way I define playdate is not necessarily something you do in the public sphere, but something you do in the private sphere. So what you're doing is creating this enclosed situation for people. Um, But just to further your point, yes, when we have something like technology that categorizes people, you've already filtered who is going to be able to reach you through that mechanism. You've lost the ability to interact with people who are different from you. So as a child, we have lost the ability to deal with the bully because when you went on the street to just play, you dealt with the bully and you knew who to avoid, who not to avoid, who was kind, who was sweet, who was shy. You figured all of these things out just by playing. And then also there's the diversity element beyond the bully that by segregating our children, not necessarily just by race, but also by social class. And by age, often. And and by age, good point. Yeah, that we really limit the opportunities for our children. We do, not only our children, but for ourselves. So let's talk about, for the parents in the audience, what what makes a good play date? What makes a bad play date? (laughs) A bad play date is when a kid loses their mind, uh, has a meltdown, if you will. Whenever there's the potential for damage or some kind of Injury. That's usually when parents think that the play date didn't go so well. Do you or think if, they over intervene though these days? I do. I do. I think that we could probably leave kids alone a little bit more or tell kids to suck it up a little bit more. They should feel these emotions and understand how do you deal with those aspects of a play date. When parents are setting up a play date for their child, any tips, <laughs> any things to make it better before the child <laughs> comes? Yeah. I mean, you know, th- this show is called How Do We Fix It, right? Right. <laughs> and exactly. so when I, when I think of 
of how do we fix this? I think we can be open to more diversity. Let's listen to our children's desires. I think we've lost the ability to do that because we're so afraid of everything our children interacts with. And I think if we actually went out of our comfort zone and actually listened to our child's desires, maybe they do want to play with the kid who's not in the same socioeconomic bracket as them. Maybe the white kid wants to play with the black kid instead of saying, oh, okay, well, let's do that another day. Oh, I've already set up this other play date for you. Instead of doing that, why not listen to the child and say, you know what? Obviously, this child treats my child nicely. Let's have this play date and see how it goes. You know, when I was a kid, I was part of a group kind of like the Boy Scouts. It was run by the YMCA in my town. It was such a great experience. For exactly that reason, it was a very diverse group of kids, you know, and I growing up in a white suburb. I didn't know a lot of black kids, but in my ranger camp group, I did. And they were my friends. But it was a great experience thrown together with this diverse group. And I got the feeling my parents thought this was great. I mean, maybe I'm looking at through rose colored glasses today, but I I think they really supported it. I would say you are a little bit only because how many of those kids that you interacted with that were diverse in that forum did you actually invite back to the privacy. Of yeah, that's home. an excellent question. Right? And right. so that's kind of what I'd like to push parents to think about more is that, yes, you go out to parks, you go out to these public spaces, or you go to camp, and you meet all these wonderful children, you meet all these wonderful parents. But how many times do you actually try to foster a personal relationship with that's those That's exactly people? the right question. Yeah. So on how do we fix it? We always like to look for good suggestions that people can apply on a personal level, but also maybe on an institutional level. Are there things that um, nursery schools, schools, other sorts of groups can do to encourage this kind of healthy, diverse approach to play dates? Yeah, I think the first thing we need to do is actually diversify our school system a little bit more. Structurally, we need a lot of a lot of progress in terms of how students are siphoned off into different schools. How about the unsupervised play date? I mean, at what point do you think you can start telling your kids, just go ahead and meet, you know, meet your friends in the park? I don't know that there's any particular age. I would definitely say by age 10, they could do something like that. But I'm gathering that you would suggest that parents push their comfort zone a little bit more than they tend to on this and trust their kids. Trust their kids, you know, teach them to go in groups, (laughs) you know, have them communicate with you exactly where they plan to go for how long and so on. Um, But I think unless there's blood and tears... You can let your kids have at it. <laughs> that, okay. That sounds like a, a good motto. And when I was a kid, there were blood and tears sometimes, and sometimes Absolutely. that was okay, too. And that was okay, and you dealt with it. You put a Band-Aid on it, and you got over it, and you probably played with the same kid a week later. Yes. Tamara Mose, who we first spoke with in 2016. Coming up, we'll get an expert view on play and education, what the world's best school systems can teach others. It's How Do We Fix It? And our recommendations this week, well, no reading required. Just enjoy time with your friends and family and have a great Thanksgiving. Okay, so what can we learn about play and also having better experiences at school from the best education systems in the world? The answer is a lot. And man, we really need it. Just one example. Last month, they published the 2019 mathematics scores for the National Assessment of Educational Progress Tests. And they showed that performance for America's fourth and eighth graders hasn't changed since 2009, despite, you know, so much attention to education reform, new approaches, money, 
whatever we're doing, it just doesn't seem to be working. And U.S. scores on reading and math are well below the results in countries such as Finland, Canada, and parts of Asia. British educational consultant and teacher Lucy Crehan went to those places and others to research her book, Cleverlands. Very British title. (laughs) So let's start with some of the findings from Finland first, which is right at the top of educational test scores around the world. Play is an important ingredient in their success. They don't start education formally until children are seven years old. So they have high quality preschool before that. But the focus is is much broader than it is in England, and as I understand it, in the U.S. as well. So rather than trying to meet certain academic targets at age five or six, they're actually focusing on a much broader educational and social development before they actually start formal learning. There are activities, but it just isn't necessarily all about the academics. It's about those broader skills, which are going to get children ready for the academic content when they get there. Before getting back to the rest of the Finnish example, I really want to unpack this this idea of kids not going to formal school before the age of seven. So what do they do? So I think it's more actually what they don't do. Um, so I looked at some research on American kindergartens as well, and it did suggest that over the past decade, there's a lot less time for children to, to do self-directed play. And I think that's partly due to accountability measures. So what they're doing in Finland is they have qualified educators who are who are running it. So this is not just childcare at all. They have educators who are helping the children to develop their pre-reading skills and their pre-math skills through playful learning. So, for example, that might mean um, an activity where children are sitting around in a circle um, and the teacher has a teddy bear in the middle and children shut their eyes and they have to count how many how many sweets are left after the teddy bear has eaten one. So, so, you know, they are doing math, but it's in a playful way. So this isn't something that only Finland does. Actually, it's the same in, in Singapore, in China, in Japan. They're also not starting school till a little later. You also talk about the importance of free time and play for older students as well. And a lot of these high-achieving countries around the world actually give their kids more breaks from academics throughout the school day than we do in the U.S. and apparently in Great Britain. Yeah, in, in between lessons in particular. So rather than rather than condensing all of the school day into the morning and the early afternoon, they might stretch that out a little. So have a 15-minute break in between every lesson and then finish the school day slightly later, which means that kids get the chance to let off steam in between classes where they're being more focused. In the U.S., the education of teachers, one of the strongest values is avoiding rote learning, you know, what some people call drill and mm. kill. You know, memorization, all kinds of, of more traditional styles of learning are very, very much frowned on. But you actually saw a fair amount of rote learning in some of the countries you visited. Mm. And I think it's a mistake to, to do away with rote learning altogether. I think the, the, there's a key distinction, actually, between why you're doing the rote learning. If, for example, you were doing rote learning of of multiplication tables and key number facts in early primary, that can be hugely useful um, in terms of allowing children to be more creative with maths later on. Lucy, before we go on to solutions, one of the things that you do recommend politicians do and governments do is when they design a curriculum, do it with fewer topics so that you allow teachers to go deeper into each subject. It seems like teachers are told what to do almost day by day. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. That, and I found that very frustrating as a teacher myself. In fact, I remember a particular incident in a classroom. I was teaching science. I taught secondary science. And what were we doing? I think it was metabolism. And we had an exam coming up. So I was trying to get through the curriculum. And we, there was far too much to pack into the, the few weeks we had left. And one of my students, who was not usually that engaged, put his hand up and asked me, Miss, why do we sneeze? And unfortunately, my first response was to say, Ahmed, that's not a relevant question. Oh, and I boy. carried on teaching them about metabolism. And I just thought to myself, this is not why I became a teacher. We're a show about solutions. And one thing that's so great about this book is that it's full of really interesting and and useful ideas for improving education anywhere in the world. So let's let's dive into a couple of your ideas, Lucy. I, I want to start with the importance of play. That's right. So particularly in the early years, um, I would to, to stress that. So I would be worried, I suppose, if anyone were to read my book and take away the impression that I think that there should be more play in secondary schools within lessons. Um, or even even primary school, upper primary school within lessons. I think, you know, children are able to concentrate and should be encouraged to do so on academic content. So my point is more around when they do that. And I think in the early years, so from age three to age six or seven, it's really important that the learning is playful and play can be hugely beneficial for both academic um, and social outcomes. Um, and then also once you do start school, in between lessons, I think it's it's very important that children have that chance to give their brain a break, give their give their bodies a break, you know, run around, get the blood flowing, so that they're then able to concentrate again when it comes to the beginning of class. So another solution is you say support children to take on challenges rather than make concessions. What are you saying here? So this is one of the things that I saw that went across all of the top performing countries that I visited. They do it in different ways, but all of them have genuinely high academic expectations of all children. So what I mean by that is that rather than saying, oh, look, some children struggle with learning more than others. Let's give them easier work. Let's put them in a lower track. They're not going to reach the same standards as their peers. What these countries do instead is they say, OK, we can see that some children struggle with academic work more than others. So what we'll do is we'll still expect the same high academic outcomes of them, but we'll give them extra support. We'll keep them with their peers in the same class and we'll employ additional qualified teachers to work with those students in class, between classes, to make sure that they are able to keep up with their peers right up until age 15 or 16. Now, one of the most moving stories from what you just said comes from Japan, I think, where there really is this assumption that students do well because of effort rather than because they're smarter than other kids. Definitely. So the way in which teachers and parents and students view intelligence is really important to how well they ultimately do. I imagine some of your listeners will have heard of Carol Dweck's growth mindset which is the idea that intelligence is not something that you have or you don't have, but something which can grow dependent on the level of effort you put in. So that's the idea that the East Asians have. Um, so parents will teach that to their children. Teachers will praise students for the amount of effort they're putting in and the strategies that they're using rather than just saying, oh, well done, you're the top performer. And I think that really makes a difference to, to how the whole systems are structured, actually. 
You know, it's so funny. It's such a big cultural difference between East and West. I mean, we have this kind of cult of the genius. And I, I, I think that for kids especially, it, it's important to reward the, the effort and not just immediately say, oh, yeah, you did great because you're really smart. Exactly. So one other area that you talked about, and Finland is an, also a good example of this, is teacher training and the need to have teachers you know, receive enough training, get the right kind of mentorship and, and support, and then also having a, a structure that rewards and respects all of the effort that goes into becoming a great teacher. Mm-hmm. So Finland, for example, they front load their teacher training, which means that to be a primary school teacher in Finland, you need a five-year degree. Um, and then those teachers are given quite a lot of autonomy to teach how they want after that. They're offered training, but they, they have freedom over which teacher training they attend, which professional development courses they attend. Is it fair to say that in the strongest performing systems, teachers tend to have higher status than they do in some other countries? Yeah, definitely. So you have highly educated teachers, um, which contributes to a higher status which means that more people want to join the profession, which means that you can be more selective as to who you let into the profession, which then further makes it more prestigious. Lucy Crehan, author of Cleverlands on Lessons from the World's Highest Performing School Systems. Okay, and our conversation is coming up. I'm really struck by a word that Tamara Mose uttered a couple of times, Jim, and that is fearful. She said many parents are more fearful today than previous generations of parents. And she also said we're fearful of what children interact with. Yeah, it's something that has come up on our show quite a bit. We've done several interviews with Lenora Skenazy, who's made this uh, a mission to help parents loosen up and give their kids more freedom. And it's such a shame because the world is safer for kids than than it's ever been. And yet we are surrounding our kids with not only are we paranoid, we're making them paranoid. She talked about, you know, dealing with bullies, having to deal with the, um, you know, the neighborhood bully a little bit or protecting some other kid who's being bullied. All those lessons in getting through the routine problems of life need to start happening in childhood. Yeah, I I think it's more than just childhood, Jim, though. I think it's also our lack of community in America, what we've referred to as bowling alone, a term invented by sociologist Robert Putnam. The, The sense that we're becoming more isolated and less likely to spend time with with people not like us, and on top of all that loneliness. But, you know, kids are natural. They are naturals at making friends, forming groups, roaming around and and having fun and making up games. I I think we really need to, to give them more opportunity to do that. And, and to do that interaction. And one step, you know, when the kids are around the house, um, at Thanksgiving, maybe one solution is don't necessarily have them sit in front of the TV and watch Frozen for the 50th time. And, and when, and when we're talking about play, part of it means let kids free, but also part of it is higher expectations. It's something that really came through to me from Lucy Crehan in, in, in her interview about schools is that, that the best schools actually have high expectations of children. And when she talks about the importance of play in education, 
she's not saying just let everything be a free for all. She's saying that interspersing periods of unstructured or less structured play with, in some cases, more structured education. I mean, she's in favor of what a lot of people consider rote learning. Two more contrarian thinkers on how do we fix it. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And as always, thanks for listening. Have a great Thanksgiving. And one way to give thanks to us is to sign up on our Patreon account, How Do We Fix It?, and uh, pledge a little money in addition to, to listening to us. And as always, if you can subscribe to the podcast, leave those nice five-star reviews if you, if you like what you hear. If you don't like what you hear, send us an email. <laughs> and and thanks for listening. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, this is Margaret Cho. Listen to my new podcast, Be Margaret Cho, where we talk to celebrities you know from everywhere, and then soon-to-be celebrities you should know. My path to this was different. Like, I was more of like a Mrs. Maisel, like, except I was doing it behind the chair. Somebody saying, oh, we'll actually be able to identify you as Japanese. Let's cut your bangs and go, okay, yeah, let's do it. It's going to be great. So don't miss out. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.